After their miraculous crossing of the Red Sea, the nation of Israel faces the difficult task of qualifying themselves to live in the land of promise. God helps them by providing them with manna and water in the wilderness, giving them a prophet like Moses to teach and guide them, giving them the Ten Commandments to make them a better people, and giving them miraculous visions and witnesses of his power. But first, God gives a testimony of the work he will do among the Israelites through the power of his name, Jehovah, in the middle of what else? A hymn. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Hello and welcome to our, our listeners, new and old. Uh, as always, if you'd like to email the program and get in touch with me, please do so at gt at gospeltoctrine.com. When we last left the Israelites, they had just escaped from the clutches of the Egyptian army and Pharaoh's chariots who'd been swallowed up in the Red Sea. And to give you a little uh, summary of what's going to happen in the book of Exodus, the rest of the book of Exodus, which we're going to cover the entire book today, even though the Sunday school lesson goes from chapter 15 to chapter 20 and then a couple of chapters later on, uh, then the Sunday school curriculum skips the rest of the book of Exodus. We'll, we'll briefly cover it. Um, so as a summary, first the, the children of Israel enter the wilderness and immediately start murmuring. And because of their requests, God first gives them miraculously water, then food, then water again, and then divine protection. They're attacked. They are uh, given direction by Moses, and eventually they end up where Moses received his first vision in the uh, at Mount Horeb, which is also called Mount Sinai, and they also, all of Israel sees a bunch of miraculous visions, including a cloud surrounding the mountain, and they are taught various lessons during this whole time by by Moses as they go. And so then and Moses eventually receives the Ten Commandments and delivers those to Israel. And while he, one during one of his sojourns at the top of the mountain, while he's speaking with God, the the Israelites lose faith. They don't know when Moses is coming back down. And they construct an idol and worship that. And so when Moses comes back down, uh, there's a reckoning. And then Moses goes back up, receives more revelation. And that includes a lot of the what we know today as the Law of Moses. And also instructions on how to build the first temple, the first constructed temple that we have record of in the Bible, as well as uh, the which is called the tabernacle. It's a moving tent. It's it's quite a well, a well apportioned tent. And that when that tent is reared and finally constructed and finished and dedicated, that's the end of the book of Exodus. So that's what we'll cover today. And I think uh, one of the most notable chapters, one of the mo- and by chapter I mean that figuratively, not literally. One of the most notable events in the book of Exodus is when God begins to send manna to the Israelites. So let's let's begin our discussion there. 
But before we do that, let's talk about, let's actually just spend a few minutes talking about symbolism in general. And uh, I think it's especially appropriate because during this portion of scripture and in this lesson, there are a lot of things that can be taken symbolically and should be taken symbolically. And I know from my own study in the scriptures that there are certain times, for example, I've, I remember once reading a list of all of the, the parallels between Christ and Moses and thinking, so what? Not that I don't care at all, but how does that knowledge that Moses was like Jesus help me at all? That Moses suffered similar things or that he went through similar things. What, what good does that do me? So, and actually, I'm going to answer that very question, or or give you that same list uh, that that bored me all those years ago, and uh, then we'll talk about the answer to that question. But first of all, let's let's talk about what good it does at all to know to know the simil- similitudes and the symbolism of things in the scriptures. Now, uh, for me, pondering this question has led to. A strong, strong reminder of the word of wisdom, the promise in the word of wisdom. So the promises in the word of wisdom are obvious health promises. You shall run and not be weary, walk and not not faint. But also that you will have knowledge even hidden, or you will find treasures of knowledge, even hidden treasures. So you'll receive health in your navel, marrow in your bones, but and then, and this is also a similitude. And the the final verse of the word of wisdom is, "I, the Lord, give unto them a promise, that the destroying angel shall pass by them," which is especially meaningful given our given our lesson last week. Uh, so, what is the what does this mean that in uh, Doctrine and Covenants eighty nine, verse nineteen, they shall find wisdom and great treasures of knowledge, even hidden treasures. Well, we're going to talk about a couple of those hidden treasures today, um, and I hope you can get a sense as to why the Old Testament is my favorite work of Scripture, uh, because some of these hidden treasures, the way we find these hidden treasures, can't be done in any, well, it can, it can be done to a lesser extent in the New Testament, but just can't be done in the, in the Book of Mormon or in the Pearl of Great Price or, or Doctrine and Covenants, because we don't have the original, we don't have two languages in which they were written. And some of, some of this, some of these hidden treasures come because the, not only has the work been translated, but because we have both versions. And it's kind of fun the way, uh, some, to me it's fun when you find questions that don't necessarily have answers. Sometimes finding the questions are more interesting. Finding those questions is more interesting than answering every question. We'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, I guess before before we discuss manna, let's let's talk about what the the Israelites do. They turn around from the Red Sea and obviously they have to climb up. They were down at sea level and and now they're going into a mountainous wilderness. And as they as they walk up the first hill, they start singing this song. So here here we are in Exodus 15, and the uh, the chapter starts, Then sang Moses and the children of Israel this song unto the Lord. Now, uh, I had a, 
in my mind I had a little vision of them doing what a lot of people do in in musicals which is one the main character starts one person starts walking down the road singing a little song about what their hopes and dreams are and then people pop their heads out of the windows and start dancing around in the park and pretty soon the entire town uh is is singing along and they all happen to know the words um obviously this this sort of thing has never happened in real life so somebody had to write this song and as i as i looked as i studied about this um I don't, my Hebrew is not good enough to have recognized this myself, but apparently this is a, an amazingly poetic song that they sing. So first thing that had to happen, somebody wrote this song, presumably through, through inspiration or revelation from God. And secondly, they had to teach it to everyone. And I, I recommend you read the whole, the whole chapter. It's pretty, it's pretty interesting. It's very much like a psalm. But I want to draw your attention. So they, they say things like, The Lord is my strength and my song. He is my salvation. Pharaoh's chariots were, has, hath the, and his host hath he cast into the sea. So they tell about the things the Lord has done and what things he will do, how much he loves Israel and the kind of things that he, that he will do for Israel um, and, how great, and how great God is. All of it very appropriate. But I wanted to mention this song because at one point, the Lord or Jehovah is called a warrior or a man of war. And this is the first of the hidden treasures that we'll discuss today. So we talked about what, in the last two lessons, we talked about what the name of God means. And I'd like to give one final insight into that, into that word. And in case you missed it, Yahweh, which, um, which is the four-letter word, the tetragrammaton in Greek, the four-letter word meaning God, is a form of the verb to be, and it's, and uh, it's a controversial translation that I'm telling you. It's actually my own idea of what this this word means because uh, the verb to be or to exist doesn't actually take this form anywhere else, and so a lot of Hebrew scholars think. This can't be a conjugation of this verb because uh, it's not conjugated like that. It's not conjugated in this sense. And I'll explain what that sense is. That, con- that conjugation, we don't find it anywhere else. So this particular verb doesn't take that meaning. And my own theory is that the reason that it doesn't take that meaning anywhere else is once it became God's name, then the, the Hebrews, the Jews, stopped using it in any other sense, they stop. They stop saying this, and the sense is uh, the causative uh, third person, and it's a pre- it's both present and future tense. So the meaning of the word God, Jehovah, or as it, as it appeared originally in Hebrew, is He shall cause to exist, or He causes to exist, or He shall cause to become, or He causes to become, and. This is a very interesting, it's, it's actually a fascinating translation of the name of God, and I'll tell you why. In this very song, they, they talk about how God is a man of war. In Exodus chapter 15, verse 3, the Lord, as it says in the King James Version, is a man of war. So, 
an alternate translation of that verse is Jehovah is a warrior. But if you look in the King James Version, you can see how is is actually in parenthesis or in italics. And whenever you see that, what that means is it's a word that was added by the translators to make it make more sense in English. And one of the eccentricities of Hebrew is that a lot of times the word is doesn't show up. They will say the subject and the verb, and it's assumed that they, you're equating the two, and therefore it's a, the, the word is is often assumed. However, there's also a, already a verb in this sentence, which is the name of God, if you translate it in the way I just described. So Jehovah is a man of war, or Jehovah is a warrior, can also be translated, he shall cause to become warriors. He shall cause to become a warrior. And then later on it says, Jehovah is his name, or Jehovah, his name. He shall cause to become his name. It's very interesting because of this. And this, and, and, and this is when, when I read this is when this insight hit me. That the very name of God is a testimony that we can become as he is. And here's why. There is no description you can give. There's no, there's no adjective or noun you can put after Jehovah that doesn't describe what he will cause us to become. That's the testimony of his name. So when, he, so when it writes, the Lord is a man of war, this, this verse also can be translated, he will, he will turn us into warriors. The Lord is a warrior, he will turn us into warriors. The Lord is our God, he will turn us into gods. So this is the, and the fact that that is the name of God, that that's the name he chose, is his testimony. Now it's a controversial doctrine among mainstream Christian sects that the, that the Mormons believe that God will turn us into beings like him one day, that we will become gods and goddesses. And... I can understand their feelings on the issue. It seems very much out, out of the mainstream, and it's, it's not in accordance with Christian doctrine at all. However, when you translate Jehovah in the way that I've explained, it is a testimony that that's what's going on, because every description that is ever given of Jehovah is also applies to what he is doing to us. In the, and the very fact that they're giving the description is a promise that he will be performing that same process on us, that he is causing us to become that thing. And right here, especially true. So as the Israelites sing, and we'll see a little bit later on why this matters, we'll, we'll discuss it, especially next week. But the Lord is a man of war. The Israelites were afraid. They outnumbered the Egyptians. It actually talked about uh, in, in our last lesson, how many how many Israelites there were, and we don't we don't know whether we can trust the number because it could either be a thousand or a clan, but there were six hundred thousands or clans of the Israelites, and there were six hundred chariots of the Egyptians, and then plus plus another number that was indeterminate. But it seemed clear that the that the Israelites vastly outnumbered the Egyptians, but the Egyptians were warriors, and they were coming at speed and with uh, with weapons drawn and with fierce with their fierce faces on faces on and their 
their armor on to destroy them. And so the the Israelites panicked and, and ran to Moses and said, you know, weren't there enough graves in Egypt? And here in this verse, it says, the Lord is going to turn us into warriors. And, and God had his job cut out for him. So the, one of their first songs is, this is, this is what we're going to become. I don't know if even they were aware of the significance of what they were saying. I, I would think that they were, uh, because I think that that translation for at least, I mean, this, the name Jehovah was pretty new, or I should say pretty newly known among the children of Israel at this time. And so I think they would have been aware of its significance. Uh, but they are not yet warriors. They are slaves, and they have the mindset of slaves. So they get three days into the wilderness and immediately start complaining, or as the word is used, murmuring. And they say to eat, they again, I mean, it, it was three days from the time when they had seen the Red Sea split in two, and they walked over on dry ground, and then they're singing this amazing song. I want, I wanted to... Yes, I had something else to say about the song. So the the, um, the new the Old Testament and the New Testament and the symbolism of the scriptures are nowhere are nowhere more clearly shown than in the than the in the episodes of the Exodus. So this this song reminded me of something I said in our Easter episode. And that was that before Jesus went and performed the atonement, he and his disciples, first he washed their feet, which is itself an ordinance of the priesthood. And then he sang a hymn with them. And then he went and performed the atonement. And when we celebrate the atonement every week, we sing a hymn. Well, the atonement is the New Testament version of something that happened in the Old Testament, which is the Passover and the and the the ensuing events in the wilderness leading up to receiving the Ten Commandments, the visions on Mount Sinai. And in the middle of that, and, and immediately after the biggest miracle of that, they sing a hymn. To me, what that's saying is the the hymn itself when we when we participate in the sacrament the hymn itself is part of the ordinance and i never i never saw it that way before until i until i recorded that episode and prepared for that and i realized that if you look at it in a certain way the hymn is part of the ordinance because we are the the bread symbolizes the body of christ the blood symbolizes the the water symbolizes the blood of christ and the song symbolizes the song that he sang. So they those three things have direct um, analogs in real events. Um, so we were talking about symbolism earlier, and the when they when the Israelites reach the wilderness and they start murmuring, and God gives them first thing he does is uh, inspire Moses to take the same rod that he's used from the beginning, the rod that he originally turned into a snake uh, when he was first called as a prophet, and then again in front of the Pharaoh, and then he smote the Nile with it, turned it to blood. He's, he's used this rod in a ton of different places, and, he, and, and God, men, God keeps bringing it to mind and mentioning it to him. And he says, take your rod and strike the, 
this rock and will bring water forth from the rock. So Moses does so. But this was only three days from the from the time when the Israelites had seen the seas split open. So it's just fascinating. Um, it's another example of what we what we think when we read in the Book of Mormon how they were murmuring, and we think, well, how could they be? Didn't they know they were part of the scriptures? You know that it seems it seems almost like when you're watching a movie and. Um, you know, somebody does something stupid and, and they, you know they're going to be the next one to be killed and you think, don't they know the camera's on them right now? Obviously, uh, if they do something stupid, they're going to be killed and, and yet they're doing it anyway. Well, you read this and you think, don't they know they're part of the scriptures? And the, and the fact is, nobody knows they're part of scriptures. Someday there will be scriptures written about our own day and we have no way of knowing right now what will be included in those stories. Some of us might figure in them or at least events that we witness might figure in those scriptures one day. It's interesting to think about. In any case, they we it's easy for us to think oh, how quickly they forgot. And uh, I prefer to think, how quickly have I forgotten? Or what am I doing to remember? The the book of Exodus, again, as we've as we've already discussed, is a book of remembering. And so this is a this is an example of forgetting. And then uh, a few days later, they start murmuring that we're dying of starvation. And God then explains what's going to happen. And he explains how manna is to be collected. So manna is going to appear every morning with the dew. You're going to go out and you're, you're going to collect this substance on the ground. And the word manna actually means the, a loose translation. What the heck is that? And uh, so they, they looked at it and they thought, what is this thing? So God didn't tell them you're going to call it manna. They chose that word. And... Um, it's described as bread, but obviously it's not exactly bread. It's we don't we don't know what what exactly it is, what it's made of, but um, we do know that it went bad very quickly, and it was miraculously preserved. One day in seven, if you if you uh, gathered a, a double portion before the Sabbath, then it would then it would keep, but also uh, it was miraculously divided. No matter how hard you worked, you could you could gather one day's worth, and um, if you were weak, you would still find you had one day's worth. And then, if you tried to eat less and keep more of it, it would have worms overnight, unless that was, the next day was the Sabbath. So, it, manna was miraculous, both in the way that it uh, was gathered and the way that it lasted, but it was and in the way it appeared to begin with. So God, and God explains all these things, and he says, you're going to have food from now on. And so we were talking about symbolism earlier, and the truth is, um, when there is a similitude in the scriptures, these are the hidden treasures. There is nothing important that happens in the gospel, and we'll use a few examples. There's nothing important that happens in the gospel that doesn't point to something else. So baptism is the first thing that comes to mind. And I got a lot of mileage on my mission from reading a particular chapter in the book of Romans. And it's Romans chapter 6, verse 3. And uh, I served my mission, as many people have, in a Catholic, predominantly Catholic country. And so a lot of people had been baptized. And so when they'd say, well, I've been baptized, uh, this was a this was a great 
passage to read. Romans 6.3, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized unto Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, and that word likeness is very important, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. And, and it talks about, it goes on. Um, and that would be very helpful for people to see, well, what, what is there about a baptism by sprinkling that is the likeness of the death of Christ? That's why we believe in baptism by immersion. This is the very reason. It's because we are commemorating the death of Christ and how he, and the burial especially, how he was buried in the tomb. And for a time, however brief, we have to be completely immersed, just as Christ was buried in the tomb and it was closed up. And that's another reason, incidentally, that we dress in white. That's another, which isn't essential to the ordinance, but it is a similitude of the burial shroud that he was wrapped in. And then uh, we emerge. When we emerge from the water, that's another likeness. We're in the likeness of his resurrection. Well, obviously, the, we, we discussed the sacrament. And the sacrament, the bread of the sacrament, uh, Jesus Christ himself made this parallel. In John chapter 6, and I, I can't wait to teach this lesson. It's one of my favorite lessons, the bread of life discourse. And we'll discuss it next year when we, when we learn about the New Testament. Jesus says, Your fathers, speaking to the Jews, your fathers ate that bread in the wilderness, speaking of manna, and are dead. But I will give you, whoever will give, eat the bread that I give him will never die. And so, and he's speaking uh, symbolically about his body and literally about the sacrament. And also some, and he's likening the sacrament to manna. And then he, it, in other places, he talks about how he is the water of life. And he, when, he, when he meets the woman at the well, he says, if whoever would drink this water that I would give him would never thirst again. So, and, and uh, in fact, that lesson is, is driven home by the fact that Moses has to summon water twice in the wilderness and food is summoned every day after the institution of manna. So not only is the, is the sacrament a symbol for us, but Christ made it specifically a symbol for the people among, who he, among whom he first gave it to. So it's not just that uh, it helps us to remember. It's that it's on purpose from God that so many of these things are symbolic. Why is Moses a type of Christ? Why is it important when, so when someone is a type of Christ? Well, I can't answer it definitively, but I can say that just about everything that God does that has any value at all has some sort of reference to something holy, to something about God, to something about the atonement, to something about the, the crucifixion, to something about the creation. Uh, we... We keep the Sabbath day holy. It's one day in seven. It's the similitude of the creation of the world. We celebrate the atonement when we are baptized. We celebrate the atonement when we take the sacrament. But we also 
worship in the temple, and that's a ritual. And that ritual has symbolic references to many of God's actions. It has references to the, the sacrifice of Adam when he, when he left the Garden of Eden. It has, it has references to the atonement. It has references to a lot of scriptural events. And it's important not only... So let's, let's talk about why God would, would work that way. It's important that he not only convince us, and I, and I, you know, as a missionary, I used to use analogies to help people understand gospel topics. And I one time had somebody say, hey, look, you don't have to, I already believe what you're saying. You don't have to uh, convince me with this stuff, and it wouldn't convince me anyway. And my response was, well, we're not just trying to convince, you know, some, some people can't be convinced by, by uh, analogies, and some people can and sometimes it's to explain. Sometimes it's to provide a, another witness. Sometimes it's to provide uh, an emotional connection. So Jesus, often in his parables, would talk about things that, that people could understand, like the parable of the sower, for example. There's good seed and there's bad seed. You know, He said this among people who lived an agrarian lifestyle. And so they knew, oh my gosh, I don't want to be the seed that falls, you know, I hate it when I waste seed and it falls in rocky places or it falls somewhere dry. And then I've, I've taken my, my seed stock and I've, and I've wasted it in, a, in something that won't give me any return. But the seed that falls in good ground, I can get a hundredfold. And so they would have had a, an emotional connection to that image and said, I want to be the, good, the seed that falls in good ground. Uh, so that's another reason. There's so many reasons. It's not just convincing, and it's not just helping to explain. Um, one of the reasons that Christ gave for his parables, and parables are just one form of, uh, of likeness, but um, of similitude, but, but Christ gave one of the reasons as, I want to hide the meaning. So sometimes it's to make the meaning more plain, and sometimes it's to make levels of meaning available to different people according to their preparation. Well, here we are in the middle of one of the biggest allegories that ever really happened. And it's because um, a lot of the later similitudes of the Exodus were on purpose. Uh, But manna itself is a message from God. And the message is, you need me every day. And he says it. Um, And and Jesus Christ quotes this, so most people know the quote rather than, than the original. But the quote from God... Um, is man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. So that's what's going on when he, when he gives manna for the first time. God says, you shall... Bread is sure, bread is important. But look, I said the word. I said one word, and now you have bread. You have something to eat every day until I say otherwise. So you need me more than you need food. What a, what a powerful statement. And God says this when, uh, I'm sorry, Jesus quotes this when he's been fasting for 40 days and Satan tempts him and says, why don't you turn one of these rocks into bread? And um, when you know this quote from, from Exodus, then you realize what Jesus meant because he's the original person who, commanded the manna to appear. 
And so he says the same quote. He was the person who gave this quote to the Israelites. He says, man shall not live by bread alone. Meaning, I, I need closeness with God. I need the word of God more than I need to eat. So, uh, which, that, I mean, that's fascinating. And manna is such a potent symbol. The water that Moses summoned from the rocks is such a potent symbol. Later on, um, the Israelites, so uh, they, they, they're on their way. They're, they're crossing the, what's called today the Wilderness of Sinai. Um, just as a geographical note, I'll talk a little bit about what happened later on. They, they get into a battle, and there's another similitude there. But first, let's talk a little bit about geography. Uh, the the estimate that I've I've read and heard for a group this size crossing between the Red Sea and present day Israel or what would have been the land of Canaan is about eleven days. And uh, as I mentioned before, I used to think that God confounded them the way He confounded the languages after the Tower of Babel, and because they weren't righteous, He didn't let them enter the land of Israel, for 40 years. Well, it's not true. Uh, they actually sent scouts into Israel. They knew where it was. They knew how to found, find it. Had any of them desired to leave the nation, uh, their people, and live in Canaan, they presumably could have done so unless God uh, would have st- struck them dead. We, there were a lot of miracles happening at this time. But um, presumably they could have done it, but they were afraid. When these, when these, and we'll, this is from next week's lesson, but uh, when the scouts returned, they were afraid. And that's why, that's one of the reasons why they didn't go immediately. Um, but the, it was a quick journey. But the name Sinai was actually, in the scriptures, only given to the mountain. And later, the peninsula was named for the presumed site of that mountain. So the, the mountain is Mount Sinai, and not Mount Sinai, as many people say. Uh, the, the word is with the A in the second syllable, so, so Sinai. Uh, and sometimes I say it wrong, too. But um, the, the, my point is that it's not known for sure that Mount Sinai actually falls, actually is located in the Sinai Peninsula. Um, and one proposed location for this for this mountain Mount Horeb as it's also known and and uh, at one point Elijah flees to Mount Horeb and is fed there by ravens and so it was known for centuries where this was uh, today there is a a mountain in, in northern Saudi Arabia that has uh, 12 carvings around it and some inscriptions in Hebrew and it's uh and it is off limits. It is placed off limits by the, by the Saudi government. Um, so it's not unknown. You could even you could even Google this and, and read a little bit more about it. It's not an unknown place, but in my opinion, my humble opinion, it's uh, it's a better candidate. Let's say I've actually visited the the traditional location of Mount Sinai. It's a typical mountain. Um, it's dramatic. There's a hike you can do, and they have a monastery at the bottom, and it's in the center of the Sinai Peninsula, and, which is a very dangerous place to be these days. Um, but I've never been to Saudi Arabia, 
and uh, I've heard people I've heard from people who have been there. Um, so, in, an interesting question. And then also, um, the the traditional belief is that they were on the actual peninsula of Sinai for forty years. And I and lately I've become familiar with another theory, which is that they uh, they ended up somewhere else. We'll discuss where that is in a later lesson. But the point is, this this would have been a short journey. the The real journey was an internal one. And again, that is that is brought home by the way that they eat and drink. They eat and drink miraculously, showing that their food is spiritual and their journey is also spiritual. Their food and drink are provided by God, and it's because they're making a, a journey that is a change. He's changing them. And what, uh, you know, your food is a not just a symbol, but it's literally true. The saying, you are what you eat, what you eat becomes you. And the longer you eat it, the bigger the, bigger the proportion of you that is the food that you ate. Only certain of your, your body's organs and substances and atoms remain after the course of a few years and for after 40 years especially if there's a new generation almost 100 percent of your body is made up of what you've been eating so in quite in a quite literal sense the israelites were miraculously changed by god not only spiritually but physically uh they were they had become this substance that God brought into being. And their spirits were also being changed from, uh, number one, they, they were slaves, but number two, they didn't have the kind of attitude about worshiping Jehovah that they needed to have if they were going to be around anyone else, worshiping anything else, as we see repeated over and over again throughout the history of the nation of Israel. They, once they enter the land of Canaan, they are constantly being seduced from one side or the other. Uh, and we can only guess how much worse it would have been had they not spent this time in the wilderness being instructed by God and witnessing miraculous things, being taught by Moses, and receiving all of the, all of the commandments that they eventually received. As they're traveling along, uh, they are attacked by the Amalekites. And uh, among the 613 commandments, there, there are a few that Jews, so Jews, as I've mentioned a few times, Jews believe that in the Bible there are 613 commandments for Jews. There are some commandments that everyone should keep, either the Ten Commandments or the, what are called the Seven Noahide Commandments, but Jews themselves are, are liable for 613 of them. And of those 613, there are a few that they can no longer keep. And one of those is to destroy Amalekites. And I remember uh, one of my teachers when I lived in Israel, he was a rabbi, he was an Orthodox rabbi, and he said, one night a year, I don't know whether this is true, but I remember him saying it, and he seemed serious at the time, one night a year, they, uh, an Orthodox Jew will get drunk until the point where he can no longer tell the difference between his face in the mirror and an Amalekite, and then he will swear to kill Amalekites, and that's as close as he can get. And uh, so that's, that's, the, as, that's, what the, that's the modern Jews' concession to that, that, lost, uh, that lost commandment. 
but the Amalekites attacked the Jews at, when they were at their most vulnerable. And they also attacked the people who were the most vulnerable, the aged, the infirm, and the young, in a very cowardly way. And that, so that was the commandment of God was, um, you know, thou shalt utterly destroy not only the, the Amalekites, but their memory from off the face of the earth. Well, in their first battle with the Amalekites, and here's another similitude that I was mentioned earlier. Moses raises his arms, and as long as Moses' arms are raised, we don't know exactly what form this took, whether it was literally, uh, but whenever his arms are raised, they prevail. And whenever his arms fall, then Israel falls. Um, does that mean that whenever his arms are raised, figuratively, he was you know, sending commands to the troops? Or does it mean, as it appears to mean from the text, because there are two men next to him that hold up his arms physically, that uh, that it's literally true. And you could feel the difference instantly. Who knows? In any case, the obvious similitude that has been made many times by modern-day prophets is, number one, when the prophet is strengthened, which, which kind of person are we? Are, are we the kind of person that is going to pay attention to uh, the prophet and prosper when he raises his arms? And secondly, are we the kind of person that is raising the arms of the prophet figuratively? Are we uh, providing him the support um, when he's not around, when, when no one is around, when none of the brethren are around, how do we speak of them? Um, so he's a likeness, Moses is a likeness in this case of every prophet, or every prophet is a likeness of Moses, depending on how you look at it. Finally, the Israelites arrive at Mount Horeb, the place where Moses received his initial vision, saw the burning bush, and God has a lot of instructions for Moses. Number one, he doesn't want the Israelites, the common Israelites, to get too close to his mountain. If they were to, uh, if they were to step on the mountain, if they were to touch it, they need to cleanse themselves. They need to wash their clothing, just as Moses had to take off his shoes. Again, another symbol. You know what are what are the shoes? What are the what happens to the bottom of shoes? They they step on the dirt. Obviously, the whole ground. When when God said, "Take off your shoes, you're on holy ground," the whole ground is made of dirt. But it was a form of reverence, and the word "holy" means set apart. Um. So at this time, before before Moses is given the Ten Commandments, God says to Moses. Well, well, God says to Israel through Moses, he says, I'm, I'm going to make you a peculiar people. That's what I want for you, is to be a peculiar people. And then in the next verse, this is in Exodus chapter 19. Then in the next verse, he says, a kingdom of priests, and this is well-known saying among the Jews, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And here's another hidden treasure that we're going to talk about for a few minutes. The word for uh, a peculiar people is actually segula in, in Hebrew. And uh, this is a fun activity if, you ha- if you're so inclined, is to open up Bible Hub in your browser, biblehub.com, and go to, go to this verse in Exodus chapter 19, um, Exodus chapter 19, verse 5. 
if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. So that peculiar treasure, uh, if you if you go to BibleHub.com, look up that verse, Exodus 19.5, then you click on the Hebrew, the word H-E-B, above the, above the verse, then you'll see a number of different translations of that verse and where the, ver- and where the word appears and how it's been translated in different translations. And then if over on the right, on the upper right of the, the next page, if you click on Strong's number and then it has the number of whatever, uh, whatever that Hebrew word is, then you can see a dictionary definition and all the ways that that word can be translated. And one of the best ways that it's, tra- or the, the way that it's translated here is my own possession. So you, will, you shall be a peculiar people. Um, it's the word peculiar that has changed. The word segola actually has the same meaning that it did 3,000 years ago, but in English, when the King James Version was made, this, uh, this word peculiar had a different meaning than it does today. My own possession, or something that belongs solely to me, and it's a treasure above all my other treasures. So this is kind of fun to think about what God meant by segula. You, you shall be my particular treasure. And I prefer the word particular over peculiar. Um, and elsewhere, so then you can, uh, one of the benefits of looking at this on Bible Hub, and I, I just think this is one of the, the miracles of modern technology and the internet, is the, the ability to do this kind of thing. It would have taken years to acquire the the necessary expertise and know how to research this stuff in in any generation other than our own so it's wonderful take advantage of it but um it describes one of the segulas of solomon and he has gold and silver and then he has the peculiar treasure of kings and and principalities and provinces uh in the book of ecclesiastes and that's chapter 2 verse 8 so so even even Solomon, who was the richest of all the kings of Israel, he had his worldly treasures, and then he had a segula, something that was set even above all of those. So God is telling us that, and, and, it, and it's very similar to um, what Jesus was trying to communicate when he talked about the pearl of great price. That is a segula, the, the, the kind of pearl that somebody would... Um, or if, he, or, or if a man knows there's a treasure in a field, that he would sell all he hath to buy the field and d- dig up the treasure. Or, he, or if he finds a pearl of great price, he would sell everything he owns to acquire that one thing. That's a segula. So the Lord is telling the children of Israel, how precious. And I, as I was studying this, I could not help think of uh, the Lord of the Rings, how precious they will be to him. Now, J.R.R. Tolkien was... Uh, what they called a philologist, uh, a, uh, a master student of languages. In fact, he created 14 languages, 14 languages, just to write the Lord of the Rings. But he, he knew, he doubtless understood um, what, he was, what he was doing when he, when he used the words, my precious, to describe the ring. It was very much a segula in that story. And obviously that was a, a perverted form of segula, but it wasn't just God who could have them. They could, and they could also be lusted after like any uh, material possession. But in this particular case, God is saying, you are the most precious thing to me. 
the word in the New Testament, now this is another, this is how you turn just a, a great treasure of knowledge into a hidden treasure. Um, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, Peter gives us <clears throat> what we have in the what we have in the Book of Mormon is an inspired translation by a prophet of God. But there are certain cases in the New Testament where we also have that. And this is one of them. It's not a word for word translation, but it's Peter, a prophet of God, quoting what was for him scripture, the Old Testament, and now we have it as scripture in the New Testament. These, a few examples of these exist, but this is, one, this is one wonderful example because we have both the original language and English of both the original scripture and the quotation, and the translation was made by a prophet. And the word that in Greek, so the New Testament written in Greek, Old Testament written in Hebrew, the word that Peter uses in Greek was Parapoesis, and it has a similar meaning to segula, which is a treasure, a treasure above all things. But in in the case, and, and they were both rendered the same way by the translators, the King James translators. But there's a difference in meaning. Parapoesis carries, and if you you can find all this on Bible Hub, carries the additional meaning that the person who is going to acquire it, it it. Uh, connotes an activity, making that thing my own, but making it fully my own. In other words, taking ownership of it completely. And uh, a lot of times you hear the word peculiar as used in the New Testament, you shall be a peculiar people, translated as purchased. And that's one way you make something yours, is you purchase it. You give something of value, and then you take ownership of it. But there are some additional shades to that meaning that are, that are missed in that translation. And they are that the Lord will take ownership of it completely for the benefit of all. And in other words, when I take ownership of this thing that is my parapoesis, then everyone will win. It's a win-win situation. And, it's, and it leads to abundance. So some wonderful shades of meaning and, and this is one example of what I was discussing earlier when I talked about how we don't know exactly what they meant. Sometimes one of the one of the alternative meanings in these ancient words was probably not what they meant. So we have the question, did they mean this? Did they mean this? All of those questions are interesting and they lead us to ponder more rather than less. It gives us more opportunity to guess what was going on rather than less. Whereas if we just had the English like we have with the Book of Mormon, even though the translation is more exact, we don't have the ability to ask those questions. And for those of you who, have, who think, how could someone truly love the Old Testament? This is the reason, is because when you're studying it, if you treat it like you should, if you treat it in the best way you can, which is, a layered storehouse of knowledge, something to be plumbed one layer at a time, and you never get to the bottom, then it's an endless source of these hidden treasures. And it's an endless source of questions that you can ask without, ne- without ever knowing the, the definitive answer and not needing to. 
And, and another example is the way that I've translated the name of God in the last three lessons. That's entirely my own insight. Uh, I'm sure other people have thought of it, but I haven't read it anywhere. The idea that God, the, the very name of God is a testimony that he is turning us into someone like him. And to me, that is one of the most precious hidden treasures I've ever found in the scriptures. And so I'm very grateful um, for my, the opportunity that I've had to look in research and look into what, what Jehovah might mean, because I know that so many thousands of books and essays have been written on just those four letters, and I wanted to understand it better myself. And because I did that, and perhaps because of the word of wisdom, I have another interesting question that I can now ask. Is it possible that this is what that the best way to translate that? Or is, this, is it possible that this is what God intended when he gave himself that name? Who knows? We don't know for sure, but uh, the question is more interesting than the answer, perhaps. So the, uh, now let's talk about the other phrases that the Lord said there. You shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. You shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is one of the reasons I wanted to talk about Peter's version. Peter is obviously quoting this when he says, uh, you shall be a peculiar treasure, because he calls it a royal priesthood. You'll, you'll be a holy generation, a royal priesthood. He also says a holy nation. But notice how the phrase kingdom of priests changes to a royal priesthood. Now, a kingdom of priests, to me, First of all, a priest is someone who represents the people to God and vice versa. He carries the, he uses the priesthood to bless the lives of the people over whom he watches. And then in, in ancient Israel, he takes their sacrifices to the altar. So a kingdom of priests means none of these people need anyone else to represent them to God. They're all capable of performing all of their own ordinances. What I like about Peter's version is that when he says a royal priesthood, the, the, the idea, the, the vision that comes into my mind when I read a kingdom of priests is that there's still a king in charge. Even though they're all priests, they're ruled over by someone else. And a royal priesthood means they're all princes. And priesthood is uh, used in this case in the ancient sense, which is a group of people, a group of priests rather than um, the authority to act in God's name. A royal priesthood means a bunch of priests who are all kings rather than a bunch of priests ruled over by kings. Now, here's one of those interesting questions I was talking about. Did Peter come up with this idea on his own, and I'll explain the difference between the two groups of people they were talking about in these two scriptures in a moment. Did Peter come up with this idea on his own, or was he working from an earlier version of the Old Testament that we don't have today, and giving us a more accurate translation as an inspired prophet? We don't know, but it's an interesting question. It's fun to think about. Maybe the original meaning of a kingdom of priests and a holy nation was a royal priesthood. And there was no king. We're all kings. 
And the other thing I like about Peter's version is it seems not just possible, but unavoidable that he was including men and women because he speaks of an entire generation. And when he speaks of a royal priesthood, that is uh, a group of, in, in, in Greek, as in many Latin languages, when you would speak about, for example, um, in Spanish, if you want to ask somebody how many brothers and sisters they have, you just say, how many hermanos do you have? You say the word brothers, and it includes brothers and sisters. So this, uh, this phrase by Peter means a kingdom, a, a royal priest and priestesshood, a, a group of royal priests and priestesses, a holy generation. He's speaking about an entire generation and a holy nation. He's speaking about an entire people, a blessed people. And so he's including everyone. And I think that was the original sense that it, in which it was intended. So God is going to make us his own. He's going to make us completely his own in a way that is abundant and beneficial to all. And he's going to do it by turning us into kings and priests and queens and priestesses. And all of that is found just by examining the meaning of this word segula and the way it is also translated in the New Testament parapoesis. So there's one of the hidden treasures of of studying this ancient scripture that even though, uh, as Joseph Smith said, the Book of Mormon is the most correct book on earth, because we don't have, and we know it was written in Hebrew using Egyptian writing, but we don't have the original. And so we can't compare it. We can't wonder. We can't guess. We can't ask these questions. We have the answers. We have the, the perfect English translation or the inspired English translation, but we don't have the original. And in the case of the Bible, actually, as you might uh, no, we we also don't have the original. We have um, a copy. We have the the versions of the Bible, the Hebrew versions of the Bible that we have are only about 900 to 1200 years old, and we don't have anything. We have um, excerpts that are older than that, like the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, but uh, they're copies of what was originally written. In any case, we we hope they're close to the original, but uh, they're in the original language, and it's it, it's more fun. It gives us more opportunity to find hidden treasures. Let's talk about the Ten Commandments. So in the 20th chapter, um, after the people have purified themselves, Moses receives the Ten Commandments and Just briefly, keep the Sabbath day. Or first of all, there should be no gods before me. Now, I could spend an entire hour talking about each of the Ten Commandments, but I'm going to go over them quickly, not because they don't deserve more time, but because I think from the time we were children, we've probably, um, we've probably learned about all this stuff a lot. So I think our time is better spent elsewhere. But maybe four years from now, I'll do a special episode on just the Ten Commandments. Um, There shall be no other gods before me. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Don't take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Um, and, And thou shalt not make any graven images. The first four commandments are how we will deal with God. 
Then the last six are how you will deal with other people. Honor thy father and mother. Um, thou shalt not kill, which means, if you want to research that word, thou shalt not commit murder. Obviously, um, there were times when it was appropriate to kill and even, even morally imperative to kill. Um, one example would be when Moses killed the, the Egyptian who was going to kill a Hebrew slave. Uh, it was not only okay for him to do so, it, was, it would have been improper for him not to do so. We, we can presume that he had to do that in order to do what was right. So the commandment is not to murder. And any, any thinking person, there, there are a lot of definitions of what murder is. There's manslaughter all the way to first-degree murder. But any thinking person knows there's a difference between killing and murder. Um, thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Bear false witness. Thou shalt not... And, and, I, and I really like the last one. Now, um, we think a lot of times that... The Jews only got outward observances, and then Jesus perfected these commandments later when he said, you know, you're not to commit adultery, but if you look on a woman to lust after her, you have committed adultery already in your heart. The last commandment is, thou shalt not covet. And this is a commandment that is entirely internal. No one could ever know if you were coveting something if you hid it well enough. But it's a commandment that has to do only with how you think. So it's true already. And, uh, and also, it's, it's true already that God was commanding us to be good in our hearts as long, uh, as long ago as the Ten Commandments and even longer. And it's also true that uh, the, the commandment to love thy neighbor as thyself and to love God with all your heart, might, mind, and strength are found in the Torah as well. A lot of times, the commandments that we read in the Torah seem strict until you realize if you compare it with what was going on in the world around the Jews, they were revolutionary. The, the one, one example that comes to mind is that uh, Jews could be put to death for dishonoring their parents. And that seems really harsh until you realize the way that they would, the children would be put to death is the parents would have to take them to a tribunal of the the elders of their village, and then the whole village would do it. And there's no record of this ever happening. And it's probably because um, the the village would, would see that these parents are being silly and put a stop to it, or maybe the child had actually done something that merited such a terrible sentence, or they would find some other sentence. But the practice of the world at large was parents, children were property, and parents could kill their children for no reason. So it's a big difference, and it seems to us like, oh, they're saying that it's okay for parents to kill children. No, the, di- the difference is it's not okay for parents to kill children without somebody else approving of it as well, which we don't have a record of them ever doing. So keep that in mind as you read some of the things in the Old Testament that seem strict. They were actually revolutionary, and uh, for example, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, that actually is a strong testimony. It seemed violent. Oh, you, you know, somebody poked your eye out accidentally, you're going to poke out his eye on purpose. It's not the way it worked. What they are is a testimony that every person is equal. That if you are a slaveholder and you knock out your slave's eye, that your eye is equal to his. An eye is an eye. That was, that was what that, if you take it in context, that's what that passage means.
And one more, I want to talk about one more of these commandments. And that is, uh, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. If you'd like, you could spend some time looking up the word that is translated as take. Uh, but one translation, and, and this is from Dennis Prager, that uh, is very interesting, is carry. And this is the only commandment where God says, he will not hold him guiltless. In other words, he will not remove the guilt from, the, from him that taketh his name in vain. So God kind of defines, as uh, Jesus says later, um, what the unforgivable sin is. This is kind of another, the Old Testament version of what the unforgivable sin is, is taking the name of God in vain. Well, if the name of God is taken in vain, then uh, if carried in vain, what that means is not what we think today where, you know, if you say the word God, then you're breaking the Ten Commandments. And that's why you'll hear a lot of Jews, in fact, they will say, oh my God, more, and you think, well, Jews are really strict about their commandments. Why would they break one of the Ten? It's because, in many cases, the way they see it is, if you are, uh, if you if you are doing something and you claim to be doing it in God's name, then you're carrying the name of God. And if you're doing it in vain, if you do evil in God's name, you're making it impossible for other people to believe in God. You are killing their belief, and that makes a lot more sense. Why that would be such a would carry such a harsh penalty, and why it would be one of the Ten Commandments. Um, one idea, again, a question that may be what it originally meant. It seems pretty reasonable to think so, but we don't know for sure. The rest of the book of, well, let's talk a little bit about what, what happens, uh, when Moses delivers the 10 commandments. So he goes up on the, on the mountain, Mount Sinai, and he's up there for an extended period. Later on, he goes up there for 40 days. We don't know whether it was a similar time the first time, but uh, it's a long time, and the Israelites start to think, well, he's not coming back. I mean, Moses was pretty great, and once again, we're, we're left to wonder, how long, how, how can they forget so quickly that God is watching over them? Uh, and rather than, rather than have contempt or pity for the, those stupid Israelites, I think it's better to put ourselves in their place and say, how long would it be before I would forget God? How long is it before I do forget God? In what ways do I forget God, even though I've seen his miracles in my life? What miracles have I seen in my life? And how long would, did it take me after that miracle to forget that he really loves me and he's taking care of me? In any case, Moses is up there for a while, and the... Uh, there's a phrase that is used here called the flesh pots of Egypt. And a lot of times uh, people will use that phrase to say, yeah, the, the flesh pots of Egypt are the, for example, a house of ill repute, someplace where there's lust involved. The flesh pots of Egypt were cauldrons making food. What the, what the, um, what the Israelites were saying, we, we, you know, we wish we were back among the flesh pots of Egypt, is we wish we were somewhere where there was more plenty and we had a guarantee rather than having to depend on God and where we had 
our own, we had power over our own lives to make food, uh, even though we weren't free. And what they were, what they were lamenting was, we now have freedom, and we don't have security. And it's an interesting human fact of of human history that people, it's actually rare for people to choose freedom instead of choosing safety or choosing a guarantee. They will choose uh, a guarantee almost every time of material, not even safety, not even abundance, but just subsistence. Uh, The... And and that's also an interesting, because we grew up in America and we're taught that freedom is so important, we think we're exempt from this. But it's it's true of Americans as it has been true of every other people. The kind of person who chooses freedom over safety is actually rare rather than common. And it is one of our highest values. And we still have to be reminded to choose freedom all the time or we will forget. And that, that's an important lesson that we learn here, is that they, they desire to be back in, among the flesh pots of Egypt. They, it's, it's only been about three months at this point since they left, and they would choose to go back into slavery. Uh, so what do they do? They ask Aaron to make them a golden calf. Interestingly enough, the gold that they use probably came from the Egyptians' own jewelry. In fact, it had to have come from the Egyptians' jewelry that they gave the Israelites as gifts as they were leaving the land of Egypt. And a calf was one of the Egyptian gods. And just a, just a couple of chapters before, the, the Israelites were saying there is no... The, um, in the song that we read in, uh, in chapter thir- uh, 15, in Exodus 15, they say there is no god... No, None of the gods of Egypt are like unto Jehovah. And then the golden calf is in the express image of one of the gods of Egypt. And so this is their desire to, this is their way of saying, we reject what God has done for us. We reject the Passover. We reject the parting of the Red Sea. We reject giving us water in the wilderness. We reject rescuing us from the Amalekites. We reject the gift of manna. And we reject the Ten Commandments. We reject, we reject the pillar of fire. And we reject the pillar of cloud. All of the miracles we've seen, we, want to, we would rather have, because they require us to be free, we would rather have safety. That's, that's what the golden calf meant. And a lot of times when, uh, when people choose something that is, let's say, earthly, when they choose the natural man, it's not because when you, when you read natural man um, is carnal and sensual, you think that there's some lust involved, that the, it must be the sin of lust. But just as often it is uh, the desire to, to just have your basic level of fears allayed, where you don't have to trust anyone. And you want to go back to being a child again, rather than taking responsibility for your own life. That is what the golden calf symbolizes, is that if you trust in God, then you have to be willing to take freedom and the cost that it entails, and you have to rise above 
the level of subsistence that the animal within you tells you you have to you have to those needs you have to meet rather than trusting in God. So this is uh, an important an important lesson that they learn because when uh, when Moses returns from the mountain, he takes these. And we learn in the in the Doctrine and Covenants, he takes these stone tablets which the finger of God himself has carved, and they have on it what has been called the higher law. They have on it the fullness of the gospel. And Moses breaks these tablets. And there's a rebellion among the people of Israel at that time. And the people, those who are more, uh, more adamant that they return to Egypt, they fight. It, it gets to the point where there's armed conflict and 3,000 of these rebels are killed. And then there's a, there's a period of repentance and Moses goes back onto the mountain and this time he's gone for 40 days. And when he returns, it says in the book of Exodus that he returns with the same thing written on new tablets, but in the, in the Doctrine and Covenants and in the, um, in the Joseph Smith translation, it says that it was not exactly the same, that, that it was except for uh, those words of the new and everlasting covenant. So Moses returns down with uh, a lot of things from the law of Moses written. And after chapter 21, when he receives the the Ten Commandments, he receives a ton of rules about how to live a moral life, and then he receives instructions how to to construct the tabernacle and how to perform the sacrifices and... um, how daily life is is to be lived, and then uh, and then at the end of the book of Exodus, oh, and then he returns. So then at the book at the end of book of Exodus, they they actually build the tabernacle as described. We won't go into detail on the the structure of that tent. It was duplicated later in the temple built in Jerusalem, and it was actually there were other temples built in. Shiloh, and in other places in within the nation of Israel. And finally, when David conquered Jerusalem, then Solomon built the temple. And uh, the proportions and the rooms and the, the furnishings were the same. Um, so the, they were all following this, this inspired design given to Moses. And the temple of the Old Testament is very different from the temples we have today, but there are similarities. And we'll discuss it perhaps in, in one of our later lessons, but for sure when I discuss, I'll have a couple of special episodes when we study Isaiah. And for sure we'll, we'll, uh, we'll discuss the structure of the temple, the Old Testament temple and the tabernacle at that time. So the, I guess one of the main messages from the, book of, the second half of the book of Exodus would be that we, we should find ourselves, we should put ourselves into the position rather than, um, rather than thinking, how could those Israelites be so stupid? We should try to figure out how it is that we could be put in that same position, how we could have the same feelings. How could they forget so quickly? Rather than ask that question, we should ask the question, how, what would make me forget this, this quickly? What would have to happen to me before I would forget God? If I saw a miracle, and, and, and 
there is no stronger testimony that, that faith has to come apart from miracles than the book of Exodus, because they, they saw so many, and they are, they are earth-shattering miracles. They're not just once in a lifetime. They are once in the Bible miracles. And then three days later, questioning whether God cares about them and will let them die, questioning the prophet. So it is very profitable for us to say, okay, if, not if I were in their position, but in my position today, what would it take for me to forget God? What would it take for me to forget the miracles that I've seen? What would it take for me to not forget God, to remember God? The answer is always that it doesn't take a miracle to remember God. It takes a commitment. It takes a decision. And the Israelites were not ready to make this decision. God had, had to lead them along very much by the hand. Moses, one of the most powerful prophets ever to live, um, we can presume on those in one of those periods where he was on Mount Horeb that he received the, the revelations in the book of Moses, was a powerful type of Christ. The people, though they saw miracles, they were quick to question Moses' calling. So, can we put ourselves in their position? Can we say to ourselves, I will choose, even though it has been a while. And, 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 and here's the real point. God put us on this world to experience time to have to learn patience, even though it's been a while since I've seen a miracle from God, since I have been sure that God has blessed me, since God has directly answered one of my prayers, since God has given me unmistakable proof of his existence or of his intervention in my life. It's been a while. So what? If God has ever done it, it means he lives. If God lives and he loves you, it means that he's looking out for you in a million ways you can't see. Will you make that decision to believe that? Or will you, like the Israelites, what will it take? How long will it take? It's just a matter of time. Do you need a miracle to believe? And if you do, how often do you need one? Do you need one every three days? Do you need one every week? Do you need one every 10 minutes before you'll believe in God? Or are you willing, as modern Jews do, to coast on the glory of a 3,000-year-old miracle because you make a commitment to remember, to commemorate, to use symbols as the Passover is. May we build those symbols into our lives. May we take strength from the symbols in the scriptures and from the symbols in the ordinances of the priesthood that we have today. May we decide to follow the prophet, to follow the Savior, believe in him, even though it may have been some time since he has intervened in our lives that we can see. May we decide to see him in every burning bush. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.